0: Please turn with me in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 8 through 19 this morning. You can find it on page 527 in the Bibles that are provided there in the chairs. Now, last week we began this series on the book of Proverbs by looking at the preface, sort of the introduction to the introduction, the seven-verse introduction to the nine-chapter introduction of Proverbs okay? And what we saw in that passage is that God gives wisdom to his people so that they might know and love him. God has fashioned and formed the world, and God has given us the word of God, particularly this book Proverbs, so that he might impart wisdom to us so that we might know how to live well, to live wisely in his world. Proverbs, you must understand, is reality-based counseling, okay? This is wisdom given from a man who fears the Lord to us so that we might live in the fear of the Lord. It doesn't shirk or dismiss uh, anything. I mean, this is the wisdom of God that is handed down through wise men like Solomon to help us to live godly lives as we navigate through the realities of this very confused and sin-riddled world that we live in. It's it's very candid and very honest about the nature of the world that we live in. And yet, it gives us practical wisdom in knowing how to live for the glory of God in it. As we saw last week, Proverbs gives us wisdom and instruction. It gives us understanding. It gives us insight. It gives us prudence and knowledge, discretion and guidance. And why? Why does God hold that out for us in his word? Well, so that we would not live as fools. As those who despise wisdom and instruction, but so that we might live in the fear of the Lord. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read through Proverbs chapter one, verses one through seven, this preface to the entire book of Proverbs, I get pretty excited. I get amped up. I want to learn more about what comes next. I start leaning in. I'm intrigued to hear this fatherly wisdom that God is about to pour out on us in this text. And so I lean in. I want to know about the fear of the Lord being the beginning of wisdom. It is not my desire to remain as a fool or to live as a fool who despises wisdom and instruction. And so I just excitement to see what comes next, let's go ahead and read the text. Proverbs chapter one, verses eight through 19. It says, Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching, for they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie in wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without reason, like Sheol. Let's swallow them alive and whole like those who go down to the pit. We shall all find precious goods. We shall fill our houses with plunder. Throw in your lot among us, and we will all have one purse. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Hold back your foot from their paths, for their feet run to evil. They make haste to shed blood. For in vain is a net spread in the sight of any bird. But these men lie in wait for their own blood. They send an ambush for their own lives. Such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. It takes away the life of its possessor. Now, does that seem like a bit of a bummer to any of you? Right? Right? Does anyone just read that and and maybe a little surprised or a little disappointed about what comes next? I mean, am I the only one that's like that? I mean, he's been building up this idea of gaining wisdom and knowledge, the fear of the Lord being the beginning of wisdom, fools despise wisdom and instruction. And then we have this, and it reminds me of those awkward conversations I had with my dad when I was a teenager. You ever had those? You know, like I'm sitting there and I'm doing my homework and my dad comes up to me and he says, son, I need to have a conversation with you. It's really important. I got to impart some wisdom to you. I need you to pay attention to what I'm saying to you because it's the most important thing that you could ever hear. Now, my dad doesn't talk anything like that, but when I imagine him, that's how he talks, right? Um, and so I'm just like, okay, okay, dad. You know, and I close my book and he leans in and he looks me in the eye. He says, no, listen, son, don't forsake what I'm about to tell you. I got two things to tell you. They are really, really important. Don't forsake them. Don't minimize them. Don't dismiss them. And so I'm just like, okay, dad's really serious here. All right, dad. Okay, I promise I won't do that. He says, first of all, son, first of all, this wisdom that I'm about to give you is like graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, okay, dad. I don't know exactly what that is. Uh, sounds a little girly, but oh, okay. Uh, wisdom will make me pretty. Oh, oh, okay, dad, what else? All right, second thing I need to say to you, son, it's really important. You need to live by this. Don't dismiss this at all. The second thing is really important. I, I look, okay, Dad, what is it? Don't join a gang. <laughs> okay, Dad. All right, all right. You got me there. All right, I, I'll keep that in mind. I'll file that away right next to don't do drugs. I don't, I don't have a plan for that, but thank you for that wisdom, Dad. I, I'm feeling a bit awkward now. Good uh, Good talk. Can, can we just go back to what we were doing before? Can I go back to my homework? And I'm thinking to myself so I can get some real wisdom, right? Does anyone else feel that way when you read this text and what comes next? I mean, he's talking about the importance of wisdom. He says, fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. And what is the very next thing that he says? Wisdom will make you pretty and don't join a gang. Is there anything that is more irrelevant It kind of makes you just want to just shut the book and kind of move on, right? Have you ever done that in reading through Proverbs chapter 1? Well, friends, this actually has a whole lot to say to us. It might surprise you, but it does. This passage speaks of the value of parental and spiritual wisdom and how we need to listen to this wisdom and how also it's important for us to teach and instruct those in our care. It warns us about who we align ourselves with and the ways that we are enticed by them to sin. And it reminds us of the futility of sinful pursuits and the consequences that will fall on the sinner. Now you might not be here today and and might not be tempted to join a bloodthirsty band of marauders this morning. But the truths presented in this passage couldn't be more relevant for your life. It speaks to both the young and to the old, to the impressionable and to the wise. It speaks to both child and to parent. And this passage is telling us two things, but it really makes one main idea. Behold the beauty of wisdom, beware the enticements of sin. Behold the beauty of wisdom and beware the enticements of sin. Now, I want to look at this passage in three parts this morning. Verses 8 and 9, verses 10 through 14, and verses 15 through 19. But in each of these parts, I'm going to address two groups of people independently. I'm going to first give a word to parents, and then a word to children. Or if you are not a parent, a word to the mature and a word to the immature or a word to those who are a little bit further down the road in their spiritual journey and have good things to share with those who are coming after them regardless of how far down the road you are and those who need to hear. And the reality is we're in both of these categories but I want to present them independently because it has some really important things to say to us. So whether you're a parent or not, whether you consider yourself to be a child or not. This has uh, things to say to us in both of those categories. So first, let's look at verses 8 and 9. And, and there we see the beauty of a parent's wisdom. Now, first, a word to parents. Throughout the Bible, the privilege and responsibility of teaching and instructing children in molding and shaping and forming their hearts and their minds falls first and primarily to parents. Not to anyone else, to parents. God in his wisdom planned that parents be the primary teachers of wisdom for their children. When you look at the book of Proverbs, the entire book of Proverbs are the words of a father seeking to impart wisdom to his son. That's the frame for this. Verse 8 says, hear my son your father's instruction and forsake not your mother's teaching. You see, teaching and instruction is more than filling heads with information. It's more than education in a purely formal sense. He's not being faithful here by saying, son, go to school and do what your teacher tells you. And I expect to see good grades on your report card at the end of the semester. That's not being a faithful parent here. No, the father and the mother have a much more proactive role in the training and education of their children. The introductory formula there, my son, it's used 23 times in the book of Proverbs, 15 times in the first nine chapters in this introduction alone, and it marks out many of the major sections of wisdom's appeal throughout the book of Proverbs. So it's really, really important. Throughout Proverbs, we have this beautiful picture of God's purpose and intention for the family and how it is meant to work, parents imparting wisdom, imparting knowledge, imparting skill in godly living to their children. And this is right in line with God's expectations for parents training up their children throughout the Bible. For example, in the old covenant law, a great example of this, most common, the most well-known, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. There God is speaking to his people through his servant Moses, and he says, And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. And we know that he's not saying... What matters here is that as a people, you make sure that you organize some governmentally formed education system because it says when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise, this is speaking not of schools and education broadly. It is speaking of the home. Wisdom and instruction begins in the home. We saw the same thing in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, when another wise man, the apostle Paul, addresses fathers, and he says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Same words being used right there. The burden, the responsibility, the privilege of teaching and training and disciplining and instructing children falls first and foremost to parents. God intends for parents to teach their children what it means to live wisely in God's world. And friends, this is a beautiful, beautiful thing. I hope that you see this. God is wise and God seeks your good. All right, so when God gives you something, it is a beautiful thing to be cherished. Unfortunately, for the most part, we've just kind of given way to our culture. We've just kind of adapted what we see happening all around us without really thinking about what's happening all around us. We've handed our kids over to be taught and to be disciplined and instructed by schools or by their peers or by the entertainment industry. We've handed them over to that unintentionally, unaware. Now, I want you to hear me here. I'm not criticizing anyone, I love you guys. I know how hard parenting is and I know how hard it's just kind of like to just get through a day and do what you gotta do, right? So don't hear this as a criticism. It's not the way that it's intended. Hear this as God's wisdom for us to encourage us and to motivate us to be more faithful as parents, right? That's, that's what's happening here. But here's, here's some reality that you just need to be aware of. When you send your kids off to school, of their time goes to the influence of others. It's 80% of their time that you're giving up to be influenced by school systems, by their teachers, by their coaches, by their classmates, by their friends, by whatever they do with their time, okay? Often they are educated in secular, humanistic, naturalistic, and postmodern worldviews. You are giving authority to teachers and to administrators and to classmates that you don't even know who are going to declare as truth ideas and philosophies that we as Christians know to be false. That's a danger. Are your, and so you have to ask yourself this question. Are my children wise enough to be able to navigate through these philosophies, through these ideas, through these competing worldviews? Are they wise enough to navigate through right and wrong and to be able to make good and wise choices in the midst of those? Otherwise, I need to rethink what I'm doing here. If they're going to fall into the same line of thinking, if they're going to fall into the same pattern of sin, then I, I, I need to do more to instruct them. To teach them, to train them in wisdom and in righteousness. Is your six-year-old wise enough? Is your 10-year-old wise enough? Is your 14-year-old wise enough? Where are they to get that wisdom from? They're to get it from you. And this is part of the reason why kids tend to trust their peers more than their parents. They simply spend more time with them. Now, what I don't want you to hear is, this is a, that this is somehow a message that you need to homeschool, okay? I know that you look at us and you're like, well, Phyllis and Chet, they decided to homeschool. Well, yeah, we did. We did because uh, that's what God led us to do. And, and I'm thankful for the fact that God gave me a very wise wife who is trained in and loves my kids, and, and is skilled in the ability to educate them. And I know that not everybody's at that same place. Not every parent has that option. Not every parent has the same sort of giftings that that maybe Phyllis does to be able to do this. Because let's face it, it's, it this is Phyllis does this, right? I, I support her. I play principal, but she does this, right? Uh, so, I get that this is hard, and right? So that's not what I'm arguing for. I'm arguing for you being really, really intentional about imparting wisdom to your kids, all right? As a parent, how are you seriously going to equip your children to discern through the barrage of false teaching that they will hear for at least eight hours every single day, not just at school, but on the school bus on the way to school? This is what we have to consider. And if all that you can do as a parent is to spend that 20% of time that you have with them, you, you spend it well. How? And so you have to ask that question. How are they spending their time when they're at home? So I've got them for 20% of the time, but how am I spending that 20% of the time to teach and train up my kids in wisdom and in godly living? When your kids come home, is all they do just play to- with toys? Are they just watching TV? Are they surfing the internet or just kind of vegging out on video games? You know, some kids, they, they listen to music more than they receive any training or instruction from their parents. Do you think that they're not learning from those things too? Do you think that they're not absorbing the the ideas and the mindsets and the philosophies behind what they're hearing and what they're seeing? Many parents are so busy trying to provide the best material things for their children that they abdicate their responsibility to properly train them. Now, friends, how will you make the most of your time teaching wisdom to your children? How will you train them to have skill in godly living? The solution is not just dumping them off on the church. Here's some more statistics for you. If you are a faithful attender of this church... You're here almost every single Sunday. You're involved in community group, right? You've got your kids doing all of the activities that they can do for their age and all of that kind of stuff. Then when your kids come to our church, they will on average receive about 80 hours of instruction per year from the church, 80 hours per year. Now, let's just say you are amazingly faithful, right? And we'll double, no, we'll we'll triple it. We'll just, no, we'll say 250 hours a year in wisdom and instruction, receiving that from the church, how to live godly lives, okay? The average family who sends their kids off to school and their kids are involved in extracurricular activities, they have, on average, 3,000 hours per year to train and instruct their kids, So that's 3,000 hours on average compared to 80, or 100, or 200, or even 300. You just cannot compare. Now we, the church, we love your kids. We want to be here to help you and to serve you and to foster those relationships, to help you to teach and train up your kids well. We want to do what we can to invest in them ourselves, but we cannot do that for you. It would not be faithful to the, that for you. Now, this level of wisdom and instruction and this molding of minds and hearts, it takes time. It takes consistency. It takes commitment. It takes love. And we the church, we can be a part of that. But the reality is it takes a home. It takes a home. Wisdom begins at home. God has designed it so that the wisdom that you, I want you to see this guys, that you and you alone as their parent, it makes them attractive. It gives them wisdom so that they might have victory over sin. It helps them to be successful in godly living. This is the amazing privilege that God has given you as parents and you alone as parents in ways that we as the church can't do that. And so this is a beautiful, beautiful thing. God knows what he's doing. Now, the same could be said to a lesser degree for the teacher. We have many, many teachers here. Or to the older brother or the older sister, for the wise, for the mature, for those who serve up in Redeemer kids or Redeemer Tots, for those who are willing to take time to invest in others who are not as far along. Because the reality is we all need wisdom. We all need instruction. And God has designed for the church to be a means of helping all of us together reach maturity in Christ. And so when you invest yourself for the discipleship of another, it too is a beautiful, beautiful thing. Now that is a, a word to Parents on the beauty of a parent's wisdom. Now, I want to turn our attention to children, right? Or more broadly, those who need teaching and instruction. And again, that's all of us. Solomon's charge is clear here. Listen to instruction. Be willing to receive correction. And friends, that word correction there, that instruction, that's discipline. Discipline. Be willing to be disciplined by other people, to be called out, to be exhorted, to be reproved, to be admonished. I know what it's like to be a kid whose parents are on them about something. You know, I, as a teenager, I became an expert at scoffing. I became an expert at eye-rolling. That's where I developed selective hearing. I still use it to this day. My wife hates it. But friends... The wisdom God gave you as parents, or or the wisdom God gave to the church, it is a gift to you. It is a gift from the Lord for you. It is for your good. Do not forsake or reject their wise teaching. When those who are faithfully seeking to live in the fear of the Lord are investing in you and pouring themselves into you to teach you wisdom, receive their counsel listen to their instruction, heed their teaching. Why? Well, because Solomon says this is a garland of grace for your head. This is a symbol of victory or vindication that is given to heroes. This wisdom is like Pendants for your neck, these beautiful symbols of prestige like that of an Olympic medal or a necklace of precious stones. It bestows honor and beauty upon the wearer. God's wisdom is beautiful. God's wisdom is impressive. And those who put it on gain victory over sin. They find success in godly living. This wisdom makes them beautiful. It makes them attractive, but not in a superficial external sense. God gives wisdom through our parents or through our church because we were not made for mediocrity. We were made for glory. We were made for glory. We were made to image the excellencies of God in all aspects of our lives. And so God gives us wisdom. Wisdom through parents and wisdom given through the church. Wisdom given through his word so that we might receive glory. And this wisdom is beautiful. It's attractive. We should want to put it on. To put on this wisdom is to put on Christ. Do you remember what God taught us through another wise man, the apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter four? There Paul said, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, as unbelievers do in the futility of their minds, the foolishness of their minds. They're darkened in their understanding. They're alienated from the life of God due to the ignorance that is in them, due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous They've given themselves over to sensuality. They are greedy to practice every kind of impurity, but that is not the way that you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off the old self that belongs to the former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. To be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. To put on Christ is to turn away from your sin, to turn away from your foolish attempts to live life for yourself and to be wise in your own eyes and to instead trust in the perfect sacrifice of Christ to save you from your sin and to give you an unfading, glorious hope of new and eternal life. It is seeing the truth and beauty of Jesus and longing to follow in him, to believe that his wisdom is for our best and to long for it because it's beautiful. The wisdom of parents who live in the fear of the Lord is a beautiful, beautiful thing. It is a gracious gift of God to you. So listen to them. Do not forsake their teaching. Now, if you're here and you don't have parents. Or maybe you would just say, you know, I have parents, but my parents aren't wise. My parents don't live with a fear of God before their eyes. They live as fools. Well, this I can say to you, the Lord has not abandoned you. The Lord has not forgotten you. You are not an orphan out in the wilderness. In Christ, you have been adopted into God's family. In Christ, you have become a part of God's own household. You have one true spiritual father. God is that father. And he has given you through the church, because we are united in Christ, many faithful mothers, many wise brothers, many faithful sisters who can impart wisdom to you. God has not forgotten you. He has given you his word, the very wisdom of God, your father being imparted to you as his son or as his daughter so that you might take it up, so that you might know it, so that you might believe and find life and have hope. And so friends, trust in that. Take it up. Join with us as a church, just practically. I mean, right here in the book of Proverbs, this is fatherly wisdom being given to children so that we might learn what it means to live wisely in God's world, so that we might live holy and godly lives before God in in, in his world. And so take up Proverbs, work as a church, let's read through a chapter of Proverbs every day as it corresponds to the day's date, okay? So go home today and read through Proverbs chapter 14 and do that every day. We'll go through Proverbs many, many times together. And don't just stop at that, talk with someone from the church about it. Discuss these things. What what stands out to you? Just because you don't have godly, earthly parents, it doesn't mean that God has forgotten you. He has given you a spiritual family and all the fatherly wisdom that you could ever need in his word. And so that's the beauty of a parent's wisdom. Second, let's explore the enticements of a companion's sin. Look with me at verses 10 through 14. It says, my son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie and wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without reason. Like Sheol, let us swallow them alive and whole like those who go down to the pit. We shall find all precious goods. We shall fill our houses with plunder. Throw in your lot among us. We will all have one purse. Now, parents, I want you to look very carefully at Solomon's strategy here. He does not waste any words. He goes right after the very thing that will challenge wisdom and promote foolishness. He identifies the ones who would keep his son from living in the fear of the Lord. And you might actually not recognize this, but in so doing, he actually identifies the worldview that stands in opposition to God. What Solomon is doing here uh, is not doing here let me say that, what Solomon is not doing here that so many parents make the mistake of doing is trying to shelter their kids from the world. He doesn't try to hide them away. He doesn't try to cover their eyes or to protect them from the evils of the world because he knows that helicopter parenting only produces simple, naive, weak, and dependent kids. He doesn't want them to remain ignorant of the reality of the sinful world that we live in. And because if he does, when they are adults, they will walk straight into it, completely unaware. That's what happens when we shelter our kids or when we train our kids to live in this ungodly, anxious fear that there's a boogeyman around every corner. Now, what Solomon does here is he teaches his children of the reality of sin and its enticements, He goes straight after it. He wants them to understand that there are real and eternal consequences to ideas and philosophies. He wants them to be aware that evil is real and present and it resides in the hearts of every single man. And if they are not careful, if they cannot discern what is happening here, if they do not apply the wisdom that God has given to us, then they will fall into the very same things. Every single person is capable of becoming a murderous thief. It's only by the grace of God that sinners don't sin worse. But the wisdom that God gives us will enable us to live holy and righteous lives. Now, it's doubtful that someone will walk up to your children and say, hey, you want to join our gang? We don't live in those kinds of neighborhoods, at least most of us don't. But the depravity that we see here being described by the sinner uh, as he's speaking in this passage is the moral result of secular philosophies that we send our kids off to learn every single day at school or with every flip of the remote. And again, I'm not saying shelter them from that, I'm saying help them to think carefully about it. Secular humanism and naturalism is based upon atheistic evolutionary worldview that has no true grounds for morality. I want you to think about this because this is very, very applicable when we think about just even education. If there is no God or if we can live well apart from God and all we are are biological machines, then there is no true argument for ethics. Only popular opinion and societal consent, popular opinion, societal consent, and we, this is exactly what we see happening in our world today, all right, just look at the drastic change in our culture on the issue of gay marriage as one example, all right, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, this was not even a thought among our people, it was unheard of to think that we would redefine marriage, But yet here we are so quickly at this, and it's now opening the door to other, more broad definitions. Next up, polygamy. It's happening right now. I'm not saying that to scare you. I'm saying that to warn you of the reality and the dangers of trying to define the world on our own terms. by popular opinion or just societal consent. I'm not going to bother with that. I don't want to say no to them. You know, I don't want to be the religious majority here and you know vote that could hinder somebody's free choice. Like Again, as, as Christians, we can't think that way. I'm getting off track. Let me get back on it. You see, if all I am is a biological machine and there is no God that gives us an absolute standard of what is right and what is wrong, if there is no eternal moral consequence for my sin, then it is survival of the fittest, all right? That is the ethic that guides all things. If I can take what belongs to you, then I should. If I have the power and ability to kill you, I can, and I just might. If, you're, if I have the ability to advance myself at your expense through rape or through murder or through stealing or through destruction, then why wouldn't I do that? Now, you might be thinking to yourself, Chet, that's crazy. That's crazy. Nobody would go that far. Nobody would think along those terms. Well, friends, again, this is the, this is the moral consequence of the ideology. And the only fact that we would stop before that. Is because of common grace. Because that God's ethic has still been informing our culture and still been informing our thoughts to a degree. And just case in point, going back to the gay marriage issue, nobody during the time of the sexual revolution thought to themselves that they needed to redefine marriage. But now here we are, just a few decades later. Nobody thought that conceivable at that time. But here we are. And it's all because of societal consent. It's all because of negligence. It's all because we don't trust in God and his word and the rightness of his doctrine, the rightness of his way of living. You see, if there is no moral, eternal consequence for sin, it is kill or be killed. And if you are not going to stop me, then I am just going to keep taking. That's what I'm going to do. What we're reading here is the natural consequence of the ideas of a godless society. Right? This is what happens when people harden their hearts against God and when there is no fear of God before their eyes. As foolish as it seems when we look at it, that is exactly what is happening. This is what happens when secular humanism and naturalism and atheism runs its full and complete moral course. Come with us. Let us lie and wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without reason. Let's play God. Let's swallow them alive like the grave, whole like those who go down to the pit. Let us fill our houses with their goods. We will all have one purse. As we as parents and as the church, we need to understand and to teach our younger generations of the moral consequences of ideas that are presented on their screens and in their textbooks in the lyrics of their music and in the words of their friends. Not to hide them from it, and leave them vulnerable but to help them to discern to help them to understand and apply God's wisdom to it now that's a word to parents now a word to children or a word to those who need to receive this wisdom verse 10 says my son if sinners entice you, do not consent. Now, that word if is kind of unfortunate because it's not a question of if sinners will entice you to sin, but when sinners will entice you to sin. You have, you are, you will be enticed towards sin. It's just a matter of how often, how regular, how much, right? Now, who are these sinners? Well, everyone apart from Christ is a sinner, So these hooligans, they're sinners. The son, he's a sinner. Even the father and mother are sinners. Only Christ is not a sinner. Now this word, it does suggest someone who is a chronic, habitual, and unrepentant sinner. And in your lifetime, you will know many. The reality is anyone can entice you to sin. Anyone has the potential to lead you down the path of folly. This is why we must be wise so that we will not be persuaded by others or be the means of persuading others to sin. Now, this is really important to notice here that sin always recruits. You ever notice that? Sin recruits. Sin begets sin. Sinners beget sinners. Sinners. When we find ourselves in sin, we like to spread the moral culpability, the moral responsibility around, makes us feel a little bit better, because if you join me in my sin, I don't have to feel as bad, right? If you, I can justify and excuse myself if you are doing the very same thing that I'm doing, right? It's always easier to justify or excuse going out and getting drunk if I call up my buddy and he goes with me. So where there is sin, there will be those who seek to persuade others to join in the sin with them. It's just as Paul said in Romans chapter 1, though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice the very same things. And because sin is so prevalent in our world, you will always receive more cheers And more congratulations for unrighteousness than you will for righteousness. Guys, this is important. The modest, well-dressed woman will not receive whistles, or at least as many. No one shouts, chug, 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 to the guy that's sitting quietly over the corner sipping water. Brash words always receive greater response than words of grace. The bully is feared far more than the gentle man is respected. That's a proverb that I wrote. (laughs) (laughs) Write that down. Attention and approval will always be part of the temptation towards sin. But those are not the only ones. But here Solomon responds by saying, do not consent. Do not consent. Do not give in to them. Now, I know that it can feel like at times you have no other options but to follow them in that sin, but there is always a choice. You do not have to follow them. You do not have to give in. You do not have to sin. I'm not arguing for sinless perfection here. I'm just saying, God gives us wisdom. God gives us a choice. You consent to sin. You buy into the lie that following that path is better than the one that you're on, the one that leads you towards righteousness and godliness. You buy into the lies, but you don't have to. Wisdom gives you the strength to say no. Part of the problem is that we fail to identify what these sinners are promising us, we fail to recognize their enticements, the, the attractive lures that they dangle out in front of us that's really just at the heart level, what's really drawing us to commit whatever sin acts that they're asking us to do. What is really getting it? What belief system, what desires, what longings, what values, what plans are they, are they putting forward that's attractive to us? Because that, those are the same things in our hearts. But just look at a little bit of what's promised here in verses 11 and 12. Come with us. Let us lie in wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without reason like Sheol, that is the grave. Let us swallow them alive and whole like those who go down to the pit. What they're offering here is a life of excitement and power and violence. A life that is freed from consequences. This is a, a life that is a constant adrenaline rush. You can have control. You can play God. You can decide who lives and who dies regardless of their innocence. And it is purely based upon what you want at that moment. You can overpower them. You can swallow them up like the grave. And let's be honest with ourselves at this point, all right? Apart from the ideas of blood and death, who doesn't want an exciting life? Who doesn't want power and acceptance and control? If you thought that there would be no repercussions for your actions, It would be very, very difficult to, or at least very tempting to act out in anger towards that guy that just cut you off, right? If I knew that it wouldn't smash up my car, I'd just ram him, right? If I knew that he he didn't have a gun or that he couldn't hit me more times than I could hit him, I would get out and I would punch him in the face, right? Apart from the fear of the Lord, why wouldn't I do that? Who doesn't want to feel powerful? Who doesn't want to have control? Who doesn't want to feel in, that they are invincible? If we're all honest with ourselves, these are basic heart level desires that we have all experienced to some degree. Every one of us. Verse 13, we shall find all precious goods, we shall fill our houses with plunder. What he's talking about here is easy money. He's talking about materialism. Apart from the fear of the Lord, what keeps us from taking those things that we covet? If this life is all there is and there's no consequence for my action, I'd be willing to disadvantage others if it would allow me to get ahead in this world. Why wouldn't I use any means that are necessary in order to gain a better standing for myself, to enjoy the fruits of another man's labor? If I can advance myself, if it can come easy to me, why wouldn't I? I was talking to my kids about this last night, you know, I was a, kind of preparing them for the, the sermon. And I said, listen, Layden, it, it, like the, 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 temptation here is because it's, it comes really simply. I said, you know, if you wanted, if you felt like you needed a thousand dollars and you worked at a, a you know, $10 an hour job, how long, how many hours would you have to work really hard to get that? He's like a hundred, hundred hours. I'd have to work a hundred hours. Yeah, but do you see how if I just go and I hold a knife at somebody that has $1,000 and I threaten them and they give me $1,000, that only takes me minutes to get $1,000? That's easy money. Easy money. Gives me what I want right here, right now. Instant gratification for all of my material desires. These folks, as it says there in verse 19, are greedy for unjust gain. And they are willing to use people and to step on people to get what they want. Now here's where we're getting really at heart level what we've all been guilty of doing. Have you ever used someone? Have you ever stepped on someone to advance yourself? Then there's verse 14. Throw in your lot among us. We will all have one purse. Here we see this offer of camaraderie, of brotherhood, of community. Come with us, let us, we shall. You see, sin too provides its own alternative family, its own sense of identity, its own sense of belonging, right? Sin does this, and if you would just join with them in their sin. I mean, this is why gangs have a particular appeal or any group that identifies itself around a particular sin, Join with us, have fellowship. If you would just be boastful in your sin, be outward in your sin. And though you may at one moment be thick as thieves with them, it's only a matter of time before those violent, abusive, self-centered brothers turn and they put a knife in your back. This doesn't just happen among violent gangs, but among all of those who are greedy for unjust gain. I mean, think about bullies in school, how they gang up on somebody who's weak in order that they might feel strong. Have you ever joined in with somebody who was picking on somebody else? Computer hackers who steal people's identities or money, Wall Street insiders or chief financial officers who exploit their position or their system for their own selfish gains. The political good old boys that use their positions Uh, to abuse their own power rather than to represent their constituents. Islamic terrorists who want to rid the world of infidels, class-motivated revolutionaries who try to take revenge on the privileged wealthy, racists who treat others as less than human, those who defraud and cheat the system, office politics that end up bringing down the CEO, and let's face it, guys, bitter factions within the church that leads to a brutal and ugly split. And it only takes one. It only takes one person who is greedy for unjust gain to make it happen. Solomon's son, Rehoboam, is a great example of this. The very son that Solomon's imparting wisdom to, right? Solomon... Had passed on, Rehoboam became a king, and he chose the counsel of his sinful young friends over that of his father and over that of his father's wise advisors. And his kingdom was ripped in two underneath him. He had to flee for his life. And later, the temple was ransacked by Egypt because of his folly. Friends, do not be deceived by their enticements. We all want excitement. We all want recognition. We all want control. We all want quick and easy gain. We all want community. But truly successful life comes only by living in the fear of the Lord. Nothing, no earthly promise is of greater value than him. Beware of friends who would come in and offer identity or demand loyalty that competes with that of God or even of your family. Beware lest they entice you away from wisdom. Do not follow them down that path of sin. So friends, just practically choose your friends wisely. You know, we are all tempted to want more than what we have. And it's easy to try to take easy and unjust means to get it. But in the end, it only proves to be folly. I mean, how do you find yourself selfishly tempted to pursue your own advantage unjustly? Don't think just in terms of money. Don't think in terms of of material gain. Think in terms of relationships. How have you pursued your own advantage unjustly? And then think about this. Has it ever delivered what it has promised? ever once. So friends, see the futility of it and turn from this deceitful desire so that you might find true satisfaction in Christ. So we've seen now the beauty of a parent's wisdom and the enticements of a companion's sin. Third, in verses 15 through 19, we see the outcome of the sinner's path. Verse 15 My son, do not walk in the way with them. Hold back your foot from their paths. For their feet run to evil. They make haste to shed blood. For in vain is a net spread in the sight of any bird. But these men lie in wait for their own blood. They set an ambush for their own lives. Such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. It takes away the life of its possessors. Now, parents, learn from Solomon here. Solomon called sin for what it is. He said it is evil. He said that it is folly. He did not minimize that for his son. He didn't try to justify it or excuse it away. He didn't say to himself, oh, well, boys will be boys. No, he said these guys are running to evil. They are quick to shed blood. Blood. He didn't compare his son's actions or the actions of his son's friends to those of other peers. He viewed them in light of the holy and righteous standard of God. And he said to them, that is evil. And sin is evil. It is not left for the Hitlers and Mao's of the world. Nor did Solomon try to minimize the consequences of sin. He said, these guys lie in wait for their own blood. They set an ambush for their own lives. Solomon realized that there's a just and holy God who will ensure that they receive what they deserve. That all of those who continue in their sin will be eternally condemned by the one true and living God who knows every single thought and every single intention of the heart and his judgment will be just. And nor did Solomon try to shield his children from the consequences of sin. Solomon taught them the truth. He warned them of the outcome, but he did not hover over them to protect them from the consequences of their sin. He knew that he could not. Friends, you have got to get this. Your children are sinners. They are cute, they are sweet. They are evil. (laughs) Don't don't read that too far, right? Uh, They have, they do, and they will commit what is evil in the sight of the Lord. And it does you and it does them no good to pretend anything less. And we're all tempted to do this. But we have to teach them that there are real Consequences for their sin. Don't try to shield them from it, all right? Because you can run around all day long trying to clean up their messes after them. You can call their teachers and argue for a better grade than they actually deserve. You can go and you can bail them out of jail a thousand times over, but you need to be very careful because more often than not, this helicopter parenting that we see in our schools and we see in our own homes actually serves to lead our children down the path of folly rather than up to the way of wisdom wisdom is learned in part through consequences both successes and through failures do not deny them of their opportunity to learn truth to learn wisdom by failing if we shield our kids to the reality of their sin and we protect them from the earthly consequences that they rightly deserve, we not only blind them to the reality of their sin, we end up paying a first class ticket on the way to hell. This is serious, guys. I see this happen so, so often. You can do all that you can to defend them right or wrong against any and every outcome of sin in this life. But no one, and I mean no one, is going to be able to play mama bear or papa bear before God. No one. Why are we tempted to do this? I mean, as parents, why are we tempted to stand in and kind of protect them and shield them and Deny them reality. It's because we're too proud to admit that they're sinners. Our own status and achievement is often put up alongside theirs. We're too afraid to teach them of the consequences that their sin actually deserves. And especially if we're called to discipline them. But both as parents and as the church, we must plead with sinners to hold back their feet from the way of sin. We must warn them of the dangers of continuing down that path. And at times, as much as it's heartbreaking, we must lovingly discipline them in the hope that they might turn their hearts away from evil and unrepentant sin before it is too late. Now a word briefly to children or to those who need to receive wisdom. Are you aware that there are evil desires in your heart? If you do not believe that, read Colossians chapter 3 verse 5. Do you honestly call sin, sin in your life? Do you realize that one sin against an infinitely holy God is worthy of infinite punishment before him? Do you admit That your sin that you have committed rightly deserves the eternal wrath of God. Sin is foolish, sin is futile, sin is insanity. In verse 17, Solomon gives the illustration of that of even a stupid bird will not fall into a trap that is set out before them. But these foolish sinners, they lie in wait for their own blood. They set an ambush for their own lives. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they know it. They not only do it, but they give approval of those who practice the very same things. Greed for selfish and unjust gain takes away the life of its possessor. You may have short-term earthly gain, but in the end, it is eternal loss. Friends, there is only one, only one unjust gain that gives life to its possessor. Only one. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, lived a life of perfect obedience to his Father. Life that you and I can never live. Absolute, complete, perfect obedience to his heavenly Father's wisdom. And he gave up that life. He died an unfair and unjust death on the cross. His blood was shed by those who were lying in wait for it. So that sin like ours can be paid for And so that through his resurrection, we might have the hope of new and eternal life. We might unjustly gain what we do not deserve. He took the sin of his people and we received his undeserved righteousness. It is by the lavish grace of God and only by the lavish grace of God whom we had all rejected that we can now turn away from our sin and to believe in the hope of Christ for everlasting life. This is our Father's true wisdom. This is the only time you will ever profit from unjust gain. And it comes in the face of Jesus Christ. He is the true graceful garland for our head. He is the true pendants around our necks. And friends, I pray that you would see this as beautiful. Because it is. So as we walk out of here, let's behold the beauty of wisdom and let's beware the enticements of sin.